From Carry the Load, these are Lessons from the Front. Stories of service and sacrifice from our military, veterans, first responders, and their families. The Confederate General Robert E. Lee once said, it is well that war is so terrible, otherwise we would grow too fond of it. The controversial aspect of that quote is the misconception by many in the general public that the soldier relishes war and the death and destruction that come with it. In this episode of Lessons from the Front, I speak with former Marine Travis Wilson regarding Purple Hearts, the dehumanizing effects of war, and suicidal thoughts. Please remember to like, share, review, and subscribe so that these stories and journeys of our protectors will be heard. I'm your host, Todd Boating, and I welcome you to my conversation with former Marine, Travis Wilson. So you ended up in the Marine Corps, how? I'll say desire. Um, I grew up in a small town, like a coal mining town in, in kind of southeastern Ohio, between Columbus, Ohio and Wheeling, West Virginia. And I'll say it was kind of just part of the deal. Um, my grandfather was World War II. Uh, he was awarded two Purple Hearts. Dad was in the Army during Vietnam. My older brother was uh, in the Air National Guard during the first Gulf War. And, and it was kind of how the community worked, or at least how I felt was you went to high school, you know, you played football or whatever. Your dad worked at the coal mine. And then as time went on, you worked at the coal mine and your kids played football. And, you know, somewhere in between there, you went to the Army Marines. It was just it was just part of the fabric of the community. Okay. From my eyes, you know, now that I'm 50 and I look back, I'm like, well, a lot of these guys didn't go to the military. Nobody works in the coal mine anymore. And, so. and to set the context, how long had you been in the Marine Corps? What were you doing? So I was an old man. I was, I joined the Marines at 26. <laughs> it's a whole nother story. We'll come back to that one. So I joined the Marines at 26. At this time, I had my 32nd birthday overseas. So okay. I'm 32 years old. I'd been in the Marines uh, six and a half years okay. when I finally came home. Uh, been married a short period of time. Uh, and the, our two daughters were two and three years old. Okay. Okay. So when you came home, when I came home. Yep. And prior to the deployment, uh, Georgie, the older of the two, who is 22 years old now, uh, her and I were peas and carrots. I mean, just like, like having a child was like the best thing that ever happened to me. I just, I remember to these days, I got a big smile on my face of like playing with Georgie and like her on my back. And, you know, just like, I, I just couldn't wait to get home from work to like have little Georgie run up and hug me like that unconditional love of a two, three, four year old is, is pretty cool. So Georgie and I were very, very tight. At least I felt that way. And the love was, uh, deep and, um, wonderful. And then when I got, when they finally picked us up at, uh, um, Grand Prairie, like got off the bus, like she, she gave me like the, the tilted head look, like, who is this? I'm like, what? <laughs> Georgie. Really? Yeah, it's me. It's so, but you got to think if you're three years old and dad's been gone a year, that's a third of their life, right? That's a good point. And the first year of their life, I don't know what they actually re retain anyway. So if she's, if a child is three years old, you've been gone a year, it's, you can think that, wow, they only had a year to, to know you and they right. had a year to forget you. What about your wife though? 
How, because a lot of people really don't understand the complexities of a marriage before and after deployment. Yeah. Especially combat deployment. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> maybe this will answer the question. Um, we got divorced soon after. And it was really, really hard um, on all of us. When I got home, I was emotionally gone. You know, I was, uh, I did not transition well. Um, and so, you know, I'm not justifying it, but we got, we got divorced soon after that. Uh, <clears throat> and it was, that was insanely hard uh, for me. I was trying to deal with transition. Um, I was having a lot of issues sleeping, you know, nightmares. You know, I think I flirted with suicidal thoughts during that time. And then she eventually, I mean, they moved out, right? So ex-wife moves out with the girls. Um, she eventually gets remarried. And now I'm dealing with feeling replaced. So not only do I have like, like just a, a mental, emotional battle that I'm losing with transition, you know, going from, from battlefield to dinner table was hard enough. And now I feel like the people that I needed during this the most had kind of left me. Mm. And that's partly me playing the victim, but I felt abandoned when I needed somebody the most. And now I got like, well, some guy is like living with my wife, raising my kids. I'm like, like it was, it was, you know, three pretty hard things for me to deal with emotionally. You were hurting when you got back. Why were you hurting? You mean from the transition or the family stuff I just described? Something led to all of that hurt. Yeah. And losing the family that you left with was a symptom. Yeah. What caused all of that for you? It's a great question. I mean, you, you come back different than you go away, right? Um, and some of the, the skills that keep you alive in the sandbox will, will drive you insane back here. What's a good example? Um, devaluing human life is probably the first one that comes to mind. So <clears throat> people die, you know, I mean, you don't leave them behind, but you, you move on. Um, and if devaluing human life uh, is probably, in my opinion, one of the biggest problems in the world, right? I mean. So something happened <clears throat> when you were in the sandbox that caused you to feel this way where you literally and figuratively put everything away. And obviously you're in a better place now. What, what could cause such pain? I mean, I, I think it's a lot of things. Um, the deployment we're talking about was seven months and so, so, with the Marine deployment of seven months, the first two weeks is what they call turnover, right? Mm -hmm. There's a unit that you're replacing. And during those two weeks, they're teaching you the, the, how to, yeah, turnover. Yeah. Turnover. And then the fall at the end of the deployment, the, your final two weeks, you're doing the same thing with the units replacing you during that turnover. 
um, the Mujahideen, the bad guys, know. Like, they know it's turnover because the unit that's leaving uh, is lazy because they're thinking about going home to Suzy Q. And the units that's taking over doesn't know what they're doing yet, right? So we we got hit pretty hard during turnover. I think we lost 14 Marines in the first two or three weeks. Did you really? Yeah. Um, what what unit were you with again? 1st Battalion, 7th Marines. 1st Battalion, 7th Marines. Y'all lost 14 Marines inside of the first two weeks. Yeah. Most, And, and that is, <clears throat> for people that don't understand, that's really kind of like a patrol. Yeah. The most vulnerable you are is leaving friendly lines and entering friendly lines. Yeah. And so that was your leaving friendly lines. Yeah. Because y'all weren't acclimated to everything yet. Right. Wow. Okay. And so um one seven is an infantry unit, so you're Correct. an infantryman. Right. Um inside of the first two weeks. What happened there? Well, again, I think it's I think the bad guys knew that uh, the exiting unit was thinking about going home and the new unit, us, was trying to figure things out. I mean, I um, recall like one of the first platoon or patrols, uh, it was a vehicle convoy. We were going from, we are in the Alambar Providence, going from Al-Kame, which was like a little um, train station that Saddam had built that we took over and made a base and we were going from there to Huseba, which is quite literally on the Syrian border. Mm-hmm. So we had these big HESCO barriers. Everybody know what that is? Like no, well, <clears throat> we've, we've, we've referenced that before, but go ahead. A HESCO barrier is basically a large, heavy bag of sand about the size of the bed of a truck, right? So you just fill this thing full of sand. It's got metal around it. And you, you stack them in line, and it basically makes a temporary wall. Right. So a, a row of HESCO barriers, w- on one side of it was our base, on the other side of that HESCO barrier was Syria. Like, literally, it was a big sign um, of Syria. And, you know, so the, the bad guys, the Mujahideen, would come through Huseba frequently. And they would come from Syria into the Alambar province, recruit people, like recruit local people, take them back to Syria, do the training on what they're going to do, you know, IEDs or whatever it is they're going to do. And then they'd send them back into Iraq through that little channel. And so that's, that's where we spent seven months. Um, and like, like I remember, I don't know if it was the very first vehicle convoy that we had, or it was very early on. And one of the guys who was just three days away from going home was kind of, his head and shoulders were out of the tank, kind of like, looking around, if you will. And he got, <clears throat> he got shot in the head with, and died with three days to go, right? You just, to your point of, you never know how something drastic could happen. And so back to your point of like, well, what, what was the issue that caused some of these issues that I have? Like seeing stuff like that, uh, especially early on, like, I don't think we, I'd been there a week and it's like, holy crap, this is real. Um, and so that that was very disturbing. You become pretty calloused with things like that. We didn't stop and have like a pity party or a funeral or anything like that. We we had to continue on. We had to fight back with like suppressive fire and, and all those things. So, you know, that was my probably my first wake-up call 
Um, <clears throat> did you did you see it or did you see the aftermath? No, we saw it because I was a at that time I was a driver of a seven ton truck, and a seven ton truck is big. You know, it's you would literally be looking down into a semi. Just put in perspective of how tall they are, mm-hmm. and we were. Um, going through kind of like a, a wadi, which is like a dried up riverbed on top of the crest of this hill. So imagine like a sandy hill that we're on getting to come down and, you know, the tanks were in between for, you know, kind of security for us. Uh, they were ahead of us. And uh, the shots came from a, um, a bridge that was off and to our right. Yeah, you don't want to see stuff like that. Sometimes you don't have choice. How did you make it though? What what was it? I mean, it, surely it wasn't you just put your head down, pumped your arms, and kept going up the hill. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there there you don't get through things like that without others, without yeah something else. Yeah. What helped you get through that? Oh, I had a couple of things that didn't help. Um, so I, things that didn't help was I. Felt, I think I had like a pity party, like a long pity party. I felt like a victim. Even now when I describe it, like they left me, you know, that type of stuff. Mm-hmm. So the pity party, feeling like a victim, um, that didn't work. Um, I drank a little bit, you know, like I would just go out socializing and, you know, socializing ended up being at some bar or something that, I don't know why, it was, that was an easy place to have it's an easy escape. It's an easy escape. Social interaction without getting deep into what's really going on in your life, you know. So that, so all those things mm-hmm. didn't work. Um, I started a business. I started a landscape business. I've literally just, you know, I'm making good money. I'm making six figures in my 30s, and on on Saturdays I'm out mowing people's yards for 20 bucks. You know, just some stupid stuff. Uh, but <clears throat> and then I literally took all my marine stuff and I physically and emotionally put it away. I put it in boxes. I put it in the attic. I gave it away. Like this just wasn't part of my life. It's like, it's not going to be part of my life in memory or going forward. Like I just got to get rid of this stuff. So I just threw myself into work. And one of my work friends said, Hey, there's this charity golf tournament, St. Louis. We'd love for you to come up and play to it. He way undersold it. He just come golf, you know, is what I thought I was doing. So I go to St. Louis and I'm pulling in the parking lot of this country club. I'm like, holy moly, this is awesome. There's like news crews and there's like Marines in uniform and there's a Hummer and a seven ton and machine guns. I'm like, this this is interesting, you know? And uh, there's this very broad shouldered Marine that the news was falling around and he turned around right in front of me and his chest had all these ribbons. I'm like, holy moly, um, that's a general. And so that was General Conway right? Uh, eventually the Commandant of the Marine Corps. So I saw General Conway, I heard him speak, and then this young Marine got up and spoke, who was an amputee, about how basically he was talking to me, right? But he was talking to everybody. How he went overseas, he got blown up, you know, life sucked, I'm suicidal, but, you know, I did this, and I came back, and now life's awesome. Like, all right, like, I'm not the only, only person out there struggling with this stuff. And so it kind of it gave me permission to say, hey, I'm not the only guy dealing with this. Going back to that part of the conversation about the isolation, yeah. you know, what the devil was doing with me is isolating and shaming me and all that type of stuff. So that freed me up to to kindly talk about things. 
And so the following year, I invited one of my my Dallas work friends. His name is Trip Bomar to come. And Trip and I came, and he's like, "This is fantastic!" Like a similar emotional connection to the deal. He wasn't a veteran, but a fantastic American. And he's like, "Let's do this!" Like I said, if they can do it in St. Louis, we can do it in Dallas. And so we literally just started scribing out, like, "Hey, do you know a CPA?" And he's like, "Yeah, call call Brett." Uh, do you know an attorney? Yeah. Call, you know, so we just on this piece of paper, we started scratching it out of, we're going to do this tournament in Dallas. And we did, it was called helping our heroes. And this, we started that in 2011. <clears throat> and so by, by kind of giving back and doing something like that, got me reengaged in, um, in kind of taking the shackles off and taking the power away from those things I was dealing with by helping other people with things, you oddly become stronger at those things. And so, you know, helping our heroes is, has been amazing for, for me, you know, I did it with the intent of helping other people, but the amount of benefit that I've gotten uh, emotionally and from a character standpoint, it's been unbelievable. There's so many stories about that. What's interesting about that is I was I was literally uh, the other night watching a documentary on uh, Bill Wilson, uh, who in who created uh, uh, Alcoholics Anonymous. The ironic part of that, I was actually watching it with a glass of wine in my hand. (laughs) Um, One of the things that Bill Wilson said in this documentary was. It was the power that he not the power, it it was the. It was what he received by helping others that helped him forget about his own issues. Yeah. And it allowed him to focus outward rather than inward. And that's exactly what you just said. Yeah. It's exactly what you just said. I got a great story that uh, my friend, Dr. Kevin Elko, he's a fantastic friend and resource, like one of the best sports psychologists in the world. So Dr. Elko, um, psychologist in Pittsburgh, like somebody starts beating on his door and says, doctor, a plane just went down outside of Pittsburgh. We need you to, you know, come talk to the families of the people that are on the plane. And the way that he tells the story is they grabbed a priest from the town. They went out to like, what do you think of like the Admiral's Club, right? Mm-hmm. They're sitting in this place with all the family members and they don't know if the families lived or died or what, what the situation is. And he talks about this large kind of steel worker, tough Pittsburgh guy, if you can imagine that, just like pounding the table like like he's mad, like he's hurting and he's going to take it out right. on somebody else, like kind of like what you talked about. And then eventually the airline executive comes into the room and, and announces that there are no survivors. So this guy just realized he just lost his wife and kids and he's he's literally running at the executive, but my friend Dr. Elko is in the way. Dr. Elko is not a large man <clears throat> and kind of doesn't know why, but the, the hurting, pissed off steel worker doesn't make it to him. He, for whatever reason, <clears throat> he stopped and turned and went over to this woman. And this woman was sitting down and she was just wailing. She was bawling. And she had talked about, well, she had, she had just lost her husband and her kids. And so this tough Pittsburgh man kind of kneels down and just holds her until she's kind of comforted. And then Dr. Elko tells me that this tough guy went around the room, every single person, and he held them. And by giving comfort, he got comfort, right? And that's exactly what we're talking about is by me feeling like I'm doing things with charitable work, I'm actually getting. And it's so fascinating how 
psychology and what we started talking about this whole conversation with love, the more you give, the more you get. And it's, it's really, really powerful. And it's hard for a lot of people to understand, right? That's when you see selfish people, like you, they clearly don't get that concept. It, re- it reminds me, uh, there's this wonderful organization in Northwest Arkansas called Home for Dinner, and they raise money for veterans, like food, like feed veterans mm-hmm. and all that type of stuff. It's a great organization. And Home they, for Dinner. Home for Dinner. Okay. Yeah, it's pretty cool. And so they, they asked me to come speak. Um, I don't know, a couple hundred people there. And I talked about being suicidal. <laughs> my friend from work there is like, dude, you just told 200 strangers that you're suicidal. Like, yeah, it was awesome. And so he, he like, you shouldn't do that. Like, like, of course I don't know many of them, but he's like, like, that's not normal. But then as soon as the event was over, it was like, people were lined up. They wanted to talk like me too. I struggle with this. I struggle with that. No one's ever given me permission to talk about those things. And so I think it's super powerful to be vulnerable. Yes. To give permission to other people to be vulnerable so that we just get all this stuff out, right? I think our only real struggles are our secrets. So as as you know, um, carry the load is about making sure that we honor those who never got to take off the uniform. Very different than honoring those who, who, who served and made it through. Yeah. Um, we want to make sure that we're always keeping their memory alive. Who are you carrying? A lot. Um, this is Casey Owens. Um, Corporal Owens was uh, with us in Alambar, Providence, and he was in a, uh, an explosion on September 20th, 2004. And it's, it's really bizarre. Like when somebody gets hurt and they get medevaced out, you almost don't see him again. I mean, you get, you get updates. Casey's alive. He's, he's wherever. He's in Alcame. He's in Germany. He's back, back in the United States. Um, and if, when people die, you get you get notified of that as well. But it was almost like Casey disappeared from my life, and actually he did. Like when he left on September twentieth, two thousand four, never saw him, never talked to him, nothing ever again. Um, one of our other Marines, um, uh, you don't you don't really know Marines' first names, but I think his first name was Forrest Harrington, Sergeant Harrington, went out to go kind of help, right? It was a quick reaction force that went to go help Corporal Owens and all his Marines. Uh, Harrington was killed uh, during that operation. I, again, I think it was September 20th or 21st, 2004. You know, body gets taken away. I'd never met the family. And so, you know, that's basically gone from my life. And then uh, one of my other friends here from Grand Prairie, uh, Qualls, uh, Lance Corporal Qualls was shot in the head for, um, in the battle of Fallujah. He died immediately and he's buried here in Arlington, Texas at the national cemetery. And again, like I said before, I just put things away. I never went to Arlington. I never saw Qualls' deal, you know, nothing. I start working with this charity that's helping our heroes. And we had a a guest of honor, General Amos, who was the commandant of the Marine Mm -hmm. Corps. And he said, hey, 
uh, I hear Leslie is here, uh, one of your volunteers. I want to go talk to her. And so General Amos and I drive over to the green where this lady, Leslie, was working, and they start talking, and I'll be darned if it wasn't Corporal Owens' sister. And General Amos, like, fought tooth and nail to get money and budgets and all kinds of things for, for Corporal Owens to go through therapies and medical treatments and surgeries and, you know, the trips to, for veterans to go skiing and alcohol treatment, just all kinds of things that General Amos did or one of the Marines that I was with that I never saw again. And oddly enough, his sister had volunteered to work at our charity event. Like, it's amazing how God puts all these things together. And I'm like, Leslie, you're, you're Casey's sister. And he's like, yeah, we, we just start crying, you know, cause Casey eventually killed himself. Um, he had a, a real hard struggle with a lot of things like physical pain. He lost both his legs and alcohol and all those other things. Um, and there's so much to the story. Um, but we eventually had Leslie come speak to our group. Like normally our guest of honors are, are that general Amos and Mm -hmm. commandants and four stars and Marines who lost legs and things. But we had Leslie come speak one year at our gala and she talked so much about Casey and the life and his struggles. And he ended up taking his own life. And she said things like, I'm sure Casey didn't want to end his life. He just wanted to end the pain and how much she hurt Casey's mom was there at the gala and how much she was hurting years later. And I, like I said, I had struggled with suicidal thoughts uh, until that night. I'm like, it's over. Like you are exactly right. This, this doesn't end the pain. It just passes it on to my kids and family. You know, I don't want to end my life. I just want to end the pain. And I'm going to do that with me. I'm going to be the, the chain breaker that stops all these bad things. And I want to make sure that my wife and the next generation and all my friends and community are stronger from the chains that I'm breaking as opposed to just um, passing it on. And so in a very bizarre way with Corporal Owens, <clears throat> who I never saw again after September 20, 2004, uh, in a very bizarre long way, General Amos, his sister Leslie being here in Dallas, working at the same golf term as I was speaking at our event, Maybe a little bit of a stretch, but I think Casey saved my life 10 years later through his sister speaking. I don't, I don't think it's a stretch at all. Yeah. Um, you know, when we, when we talk about people who never got to take off the uniform, it's very easy for people to think figurative or, I mean, literally, you know, that they died in uniform. Yeah. And I, I, I think. Corporal Owens is a really good example of how figuratively so many people do die in uniform. Yeah. Their soul, as you knew it, is dead. Yeah. Um, and the fact that, that you give Corporal Owens in, in his death the credit for your living I think shows the tremendous sacrifice that he made. Yeah. And and I, th- I think it's also very important to point out that, um, you know, the pain, a lot of times what I've heard said is that that pain, 
they don't want to be painful to others. And that, that's yeah. one of the things that I've, I've has been very uncomfortable for me. Um, a lot of times when people take their own life, it's because of that right there. Yeah. They, they don't want it. They don't want to, they don't want their pain to be someone else's pain. Like a burden. Some of that. It's just, I, I think it kind of goes back to, you know, we were talking about this a little bit earlier. I, I, Oh, it's so complex. The mental health side of things. It's yeah. so complex. Yeah. And, you know, the, the boomerang effect of love, you know, that, that you, that we started this whole conversation yeah. with. Yeah. It's so important. Because that's what it is. Um, I mean, I mean, you're right. The, the mental aspect is very complex. It, it really boils down to being hopeless. Like I have no hope that things are going to get better. Like the pain is so great. <clears throat> For Casey, it was surgery, 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 therapy, therapy, drinking, drug, you know, just, uh, I never talked to him, but I know, I, I don't know, I, I would guess that he just felt like there's no hope that this is not going to get better. Um, so, so I told you a little bit about, um, Qualls who got killed in Fallujah yes. and Harrington who went to go get Casey who died that day. Again, I finally open up the boxes and I go to Arlington, Texas cemetery to see Qualls because a bunch of my buddies around here always go see him. And so I'll describe this verbally to your listeners, but here's, here's Qualls's tombstone down there at Arlington and look who's behind him. Harrington. You've got to be kidding me. It's unbelievable how that worked out. I never, I didn't even know Harrington was buried there. And we're talking about Qualls, and I look up, and I'll be, there's Sergeant Harrington, literally the next tomb behind him. So what, what I'm... Is, is, that, is that the Star of David? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that picture, this is for another time, but that picture is so powerful in so many different ways. Um, we talked about the div- divisiveness earlier and there's a Christian headstone and right behind it. Yeah. Star of David. That's powerful. Yeah. Um, it's very powerful and there's gotta be some, you know, intervention to all those stories. You know, I, I, one of the lessons is how intertwined we all are. Yes. Right. I mean, Normally, this is kind of where I would end things, but I mean, you've, you've given me so many things to think about. Um, and I just, I, the only other thing that I would ask is what do you want people, what do you want people to walk away from based on everything we've talked about? Yeah. This answer may seem like it's geared toward <clears throat> veterans or combat veterans, but it's for everybody. We talk about um, mental health and the complexity and social mask, and everybody has some issues they're dealing with. And PTSD gets a lot of attention, right? Post-traumatic stress disorder. <clears throat> and even the name is negative, if you will. But um, I heard uh, another veteran, his name is Captain Charlie Plum speak. Have you ever heard of him? No. Fascinating. <clears throat> so Captain Plum was a fighter pilot in Vietnam and he got shot down like days before he's supposed to go home. 
uh, he gets captured, taken, becomes a prisoner of war for six years. He's in a POW Vietnam camp uh, in his, his, I call it a cage, but whatever you would call his living conditions is eight feet long by eight feet wide. Just can you imagine being in an eight foot box for six years? No. Beaten, tortured, uh, away from home, assuming you're going to die. And Captain Plum talks about how he finally interacted with other uh, prisoners of war. They had like this little system, like a tapping system on the wall, like, and, and a grid, if you could imagine a piece of paper with like... So this is at the Hanoi Hilton. Yeah. And it was like this code. I, I don't need to get into the code, but they would tell, had this tapping code where they could communicate with each other. And Captain Plum talked about how knowing that there are other people that communicating and bonding with other people in your situation was like, like literally meant life or death. The people that communicated with each other lived, the people that didn't died. And that's partly what we talk about with all these things. And then the, the most powerful thing that I want people to pull out of Captain Plum in all of our lives is what he calls post-traumatic growth. And this is an interesting mm, spin on PTSD. Not that PTSD doesn't exist, because it certainly does in, in all of our lives, but the fact that you can choose post-traumatic growth. And whether you're a combat veteran or a single mom trying to figure out how to get kids to work or get kids to school and still pay the bills and all that stuff, whatever your traumatic situation is, don't box it up like I did. Uh, live through it and survive like Captain Plum did with communication, connecting with other people, and that's going to spur some tremendous growth in your life because you're going to become stronger through your struggles and you're going to become the victor instead of the victim. I just, I love post-traumatic growth. And I think we all have that in our lives, in our future. I don't think I could have summed that up any better. So I'm just going to leave it there. <laughs> good. You know, you're, you're doing a lot of good work. Like you're taking your skill set and, and uh, time, talent and resources and, and helping other people. So God bless you and the whole crew for, for making this possible and helping other people. Thank you. Thank you. If this resonated with you in the least, please subscribe and like, and please, please, please share it with at least one person. These are the stories that make us uniquely American. These are the stories that preserve the integrity of our nation.